metaphors here. And he takes us from shepherding to a banquet. And the guest of the banquet is you. You are the, you are the guest. And we'll explain that in Psalm 23, 5. So let's read that verse. David writes this. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, and you anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. So this is an interesting text. You know, we're, we're, we're kind of looking at sheep and how God cares for sheep and how we're not very bright, but yet God protects us. He feeds us. He, he gives us rest. And then there's just kind of a pivot. And the pivot takes us to this phrase, he prepares a table before me in the presence of of my enemies. And that's an interesting phrase there. I had to chew on this because, first of all, why would he prepare a table in the presence of my enemies? You know, if, if I'm just being honest with you, I want him to prepare a table for me uh, with my enemies removed. In fact, if, if I could have God do whatever I wanted, not only would I have my enemies removed, I would have him smite my enemies. And so my table would not be in the presence of my enemies. My, my table would be on top of the bodies of my enemies, probably. And that would be a banquet that I would like to go to. So this is a curious thought to me. Well, why does he have a table set up for us in the presence of our enemies? And now you've got to ask that question, too. Why, why, is, he, why is he doing this? Well, an, another thing I thought of, too, is he, it says he... He, he goes before me and sets up a table. Before can be either positional or chronological, so it could be that it's just in front of us. But I think that, that it's set up before we even get there. And Deuteronomy says that God goes before us. And so if you get this picture of a banquet, what you'll really understand is, is, is this picture is you're showing up and everything's already done. The banquet is set, the table is made, the food is ready, you show up, you're the honored guest, and all around you are your enemies. Super curious. Well, uh, we got to understand who our enemies are before we go any further. So scripturally speaking, we only have three enemies. We, we have our own flesh. Remember, Paul says we war in our own flesh, and so we are sometimes our worst enemies uh, and and if, if you don't amen in your spirit on that one, right? We, we are oftentimes our worst enemies. Uh, the second enemy we have is the world. You know, the world is, is, is a fallen place. It is not our home. We are, we are simply passing through it. We are sojourners waiting to get to the promised land. So we have enemies with ourselves. We have enemies in the world. And of course, the devil. The devil is our enemy. And, and we don't wage war solely in the physical. We also wage it in the spiritual. So these are our enemies. And so we show up to the banquet that's already been prepared for us, and the table is set, and all around us is our enemies. Uh, and, and he goes on then. He goes on, and he says, not only are you eating at a banquet in front of all your enemies, your, your head is anointed with oil, and your cup overflows. Now, contextually, this makes sense. So this would be thematic with a banquet. That's why also I think he does a metaphor switch here. But, but in a context of our culture, this doesn't make sense. We typically don't do a lot of anointing heads with oil anymore, and this cup overflowing thing just sounds like a mess at the table that we don't fully comprehend. But this, of course, would have been an ancient Near East society, and the anointing of the oil on the head would be symbolic of a special guest. 
So when a guest would come into your house, you would anoint their head with oil. They were, it was symbolic. This is a special person. God says you are a special person. He anoints your head with oil. And then the cup overflowing, that's interesting. So, so one of the ways in an ancient Near East society you would show that somebody was special was you would give them an abundance of food and drink. You, you would essentially say, you are so special to me that I'm going to fill your cup and I'm going to waste drink on you. Because you're a special guest. I, I get the picture uh, of sitting at my Grandpa Tom's table years ago. Uh, Grandpa Tom loved to host. And when you'd show up, he'd put a spread out. And I can remember telling my friends who'd come eat at Grandpa Tom's, when you're done eating, leave some food on your plate. Because if you eat everything, he's going to dish up more and put it on your plate. Uh, this is that kind of concept of your, of your plate is overflowing. You're a special guest. You're a special guest in the, in the kingdom of heaven. You're his sheep. He prepares a table before you. He goes before you. He sets it up, and you show up, and all around you are your enemies. So I got hung up on that as I was studying the last few weeks on this. And, and here's the conclusion I came up with. You know, in this world, we will have trouble. It's a promise of Scripture. Nowhere in Scripture are we promised an easy load. In fact, oftentimes, if you walk out the will of God in your life, things might actually get more difficult. Sometimes people think, you know, I was trying to do what God wanted and things went poorly. And, and so I, I must not have been in his will. And I always say, well, you better talk to the Apostle Paul because every time the Apostle Paul did the will of God, people threw rocks at him, threw him in prison, tried to kill him, and oh, eventually did kill him. Right? And so just because life is difficult doesn't mean you're in the will of God. In fact, oftentimes when you're in the will of God, there'll be tension points because you're walking to a different beat. You're not in the world. You're, you're removed from the world, and yet you live in this place. And so you are not going to be removed from your enemies, and your enemies are not going to be removed from you. You're going to be sheltered and cared for and protected in the presence of your enemies. You see, the truth is, if, if you were weak in the spirit, God would need to remove your enemies from you. But you've not been given a spirit of weakness or of fear. So you don't have to be removed from your enemies because your enemies can't touch you. Scripture tells us that. You walk under the covenant and care of our creator, of the good shepherd. He cares for us. He protects us. And so all around us might be enemies. But you won't stumble. You won't fall. You're his guest. And he prepares a table before you in the presence of your enemies. You know, as I was chewing on this, I was greatly encouraged. Because you should be thankful. For those of you who know me, you can amen this. But those who don't know me, you should be thankful I'm not God. Because I would smite people constantly. Um, you know, every time I'm at a red light and someone's in front of me and it turns green and they don't go, I would smite them. You know? And I, the world would be a better place for it. Uh, it would be a lonelier place. But it would be a better place, right? I, I'm, I'm impetuous. I'm often thoughtless. I oftentimes don't care like I ought to care. I actually oftentimes don't shepherd like I ought to shepherd. I, I would not be a good God, but we have a good God. And he doesn't remove us from our, our struggles. He doesn't take us from this place. He blesses and protects us in this place. And you say, Jason, I need to see this in Scripture. And I'll tell you where I see this in Scripture. 
You can turn to the gospel letter of Mark if you have your Bible. If not, it's, it's on the screen. Uh, Mark chapter 4 tells us about a time early on in the disciples' journey when they were surrounded by their enemy. And Christ doesn't necessarily just remove the enemy. He's with us in the storm. So Mark chapter 4, Jesus has just finished his sermon on the mount or the sermon on the plain in, in Mark. He's just finished this great teaching on what it means to be a follower or a disciple of the Messiah. And, and they get in a boat. And they're going to go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And so Mark chapter 4, verse 35, tells us this account. It says this, uh, verse 35, excuse me, uh, chapter 4, 35. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him, and they said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke, and he rebuked the wind, and he said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey them? So put yourself in the story. You, you've just been with the most popular guy who's been teaching and the masses are showing up and, 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 and he, he is trending in all the right directions and you're one of his 12. You're in his inner circle. you got to feel pretty good, don't you? And he says, all right, guys, let's get in a boat because we're going to go to the other side of the sea. Now, the Sea of Galilee is a gigantic lake. It's not really a, a, a sea. It's 13 miles long by eight miles wide. It's a huge lake. It's one of the lowest lakes in, in, in the world, too, by the way, up sea level. It's below sea level. It's surrounded by mountains, and as such, it gets hit with these freak windstorms constantly. And so, and so the disciples get in this boat. They've just experienced one of the greatest moments of their life. They're in the in crowd for the first time. They get in their boat, and they're heading across the sea. And sometime in the middle of the night, a storm hits. And it's a terrifying storm. It says it's a magos wind. It's, it's a huge wind. It's gigantic. It's, Matthew tells us it's like an earthquake. And the disciples are, are freaking out. Now, you know it's a bad storm when a bunch of fishermen wake up the carpenter to ask what to do in the storm. These guys had seen storms. These guys had experienced storms out on the water. Now, I don't know if you've ever been on the water when there's a storm uh, we had the privilege the first couple years we were married to live right off the Lake Oahe down in South Dakota, a massive lake. And we were out fishing and tubing and just enjoying the day one summer day, and a freak storm hit. And I can still remember the sound. I said to my wife, uh, I said, boy, rain is really loud when you're on the water. Uh, it wasn't rain. It was hail. And we could watch it coming our way, and we're out there in a boat. You know, you can't outrun that. You can't cover up. Your boat's wide open, so you just hunker down. You're helpless. You can't do anything. And, and so the disciples who have been cared for to this point by their Messiah, they turn and they look, and, and what's Jesus doing? He's sleeping. He's tired. He's done ministry all day. It really shows us his human side, doesn't it? 
And so I know it doesn't say Peter is the one who woke him up, but I know it had to have been Peter because Peter was the guy who did all that stuff. And some wake him up. And so go wake him up. And do you notice what the disciples say to him? Don't you even care? I have never asked God if he cares for me. Right? I've never doubted him. Eh, don't let the lightning strike, right? Uh, can't you put yourself in that situation? Haven't you wondered where God is sometimes? He either seems like, here's, he, this, will ble- this, will, this will mess you up with your mind. He either can do anything and doesn't, or he can't do anything. So if he can do anything and he doesn't, that means he's choosing to let you be in that storm. You've got to wrestle with that. And so the disciples say, don't you even care? We're being tossed around. And, and they don't know what Jesus can do at this point. They're too early on in the ministry. They don't know that he has this kind of power, but he stands up, and before he rebukes the storm, he rebukes them, and he says, how long are you guys going to be afraid? Oh, I, I have faith. Help me with my unbelief, though. <laughs> Can't you identify with that? Won't you just calm the storm? In my life, Jesus. Well, they don't know he can calm a storm, but they want him to at least be suffering with them. And so, so he wakes up, he says, you have little faith, he calms the storm. And then the disciples look at each other, and if you read there in Mark, they're no longer afraid. Do you know what they are now? They're greatly afraid. They're megas afraid. Megasphobia is the Greek there. So they were afraid of the storm, now they're really afraid. Because now they know who's sitting in the boat with them. Who can calm a storm? Now, I I kind of identify with the disciples. Not the good parts of them, but the bad parts of them. I feel like one of those disciples. Because because as much as they've seen and they will see, they still live in this place of doubt. And I can identify with that. Because I tend to want to live in a place of doubt as well. They didn't know he, I'm, I, I, I'm like, why did he chastise them? They didn't know he could calm the storm. And here's why he chastised them. Because to that point, he had not failed them. And he told them before they got in the boat, what did he tell them? He said, get in the boat because we're what? We're going to the other side. He didn't say there wouldn't be storms. He didn't say there wouldn't be disappointments. He didn't say there wouldn't be tension points. He didn't say there wouldn't be struggles. He didn't say sometimes they'd want to quit. What he said was he would get them to the other side. And when we preach the care of Christ, oftentimes we mischaracterize it. We mischaracterize it to say that God will remove us from our struggles. He'll remove us from our tension points. He'll remove us from difficult situations. And that's just an axiomatic lie. In fact, James says, count it all joy when you face trials because it's in those trials you do what? You grow. A loving father doesn't not let his child go through struggles. Could you imagine? We have four kids. Uh, Three of them can ride bike without training wheels. The youngest is learning. Can you imagine if we as parents would have just said, you know, if you take those training wheels off, they might fall. So we're just going to leave them on. We would... (laughs) All of us be going down the greenway with training wheels on because we don't want to let people fall. It feels unloving to watch a four-year-old fall off their bike sometimes. I know she's going to fall. I don't take joy in it. I certainly don't like the howling afterwards. But I know that she can't learn if she doesn't suffer. These boys up front who are all lifting weights, what is going on there? I'm scared of them all. You guys know that you can't gain muscle 
without suffering in the weight room, right? You can't grow without struggles. A a loving father doesn't remove us from struggles. A loving father doesn't remove us from trials. A loving father stays with us in those places. Scripture tells us, in this world, you will have trouble. Psalm 23, 5, he goes before me, though, and he prepares blessing even when I'm surrounded by my enemies. 2 Corinthians 4, 8, 9, we are hard-pressed on every side, but we're not abandoned. He doesn't leave us. He doesn't forsake us. He's a good shepherd. And he puts a table in front of us and says, it's ready for you. There's food. You're my special guest. Count it all joy, brothers and sisters, when you face those trials of various kinds. Because it's in the steadfast trials that our faith grows steadfastly. You want to grow tall, you have to go deep first. And it's only trials that can bring us there. You don't have to fear your enemies. You don't have to hide from them. You can have your table surrounded by them. Because your creator will get you to the other side. We're just passing through. I've uh, had the, the, the privilege of doing many different funerals. Uh, I haven't counted them, but I would guess probably like 60 or 70 funerals in my life. And, and in all those funerals, you know, I've, I've had some where it's the, 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 the lady who's 95 with 30-some great-grandchildren. That's a fun funeral. But then there's some that have been really difficult. And probably the most difficult funeral I ever preached, and I've done, I've done children, I've, I've done teens, but probably the hardest one I'd ever done was a woman from our church who was my age. So she was probably mid-30s at the time when we did this funeral. And what was interesting, her name was Jen, was she was, she was diagnosed with cancer. And it was almost a certainty cancer would kill her. But we as a people of faith, we petitioned the throne room of grace. And we asked God to remove the suffering from her. And she had two little girls. They were a part of our, of our small group. We, we, we were a, a larger church, but they were really a part of our inner circle. So it was tough. We spent a year with her while she died. And so I can remember I'd check on her. I'd, once every three or four weeks, I'd go meet with her, which was just a, just a surreal experience. And her faith was so robust. One of the most fun things we did in ministry ever is our church took a donation up and sent her and her daughters to Disney World one last time. I thought that was so cool. Um, she was sick, and she came back, and we watched her as a congregation slowly die, this young, vibrant woman slowly die. And so one of the interesting things was I got to plan her funeral with her while she was still alive, which is always a little strange, you know, like, so what songs do you want sung when you're gone? Those kind of things are just weird. And, and so I said, you know, it's going to be a large funeral, Jen. You're young. You're well-known. People love you. Uh, it's going to be a large funeral. What would you want me to say at your funeral? And she picked this story that we just read. She picked the one out of Matthew. But, but it's the same story. It's a story of Jesus calming the storm. And, and I can remember a real check in my spirit. Because I thought, well, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know that I want to preach that at your funeral. <laughs> you know? That's, that feels strange. And she, she said... Jason, we all die. You understand that? We all die. I'm dying a little younger than I'd like, but we all die. His promise isn't that we won't have struggles. His promise isn't that we won't have difficult things happen to us. His promise is that he'll see us to the other side. What a great, what a great person of faith she was. I remember 
uh, hardest thing ever is her daughter was my youngest daughter's age now, and she looked me in the eye at the funeral, and she said, when will my mother come back? And I thought, Jen, do you really want me to preach that? <laughs> you know, uh, but she did want me to preach that because her daughter's going to be in glory with Jen. We're all going to be reunited, those of us of faith. His promise is that he prepares a table in front of your enemies. Your enemies can't touch you. What can take you out of the hands of God? Nothing. You are secure. You are safe. You're his honored guest. Where even though all around you the wolves prowl, he has food aplenty. He anoints your head with oil. And your cup overflows. Don't have fear, church. He'll get us to the other side. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for your texts. You know, we don't fully understand everything you've written, but we want to. So help each of us to dig into your word, Lord, to not just listen on Sunday mornings, but to be weekly and daily in our words, that we can grow in faith. You're, you have so many promises in Scripture that we, we, we must not overlook. And one of them is this, that we are going to have troubles, but you give us your peace. And so thank you for, for making us your honored guest, Lord. Thank you that you've given to us out of abundance. Thank you that you don't give us what we deserve, which is death, but you give us life and you give it in abundance, Lord. And so as we go from this place and we celebrate fellowship by, by breaking bread together, Lord, help us to remember the good things you have given, the anointing of our head and our cups overflowing. It's in Christ's perfect and holy name we all pray these things. Amen.